0: Our reading today comes again from the Gospel of John chapter twenty, following the resurrection story we led last week, starting in verse 19. It was still the first day of the week that evening while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands in his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Then Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left In left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side no more disbelief believe Thomas responded to Jesus my Lord and my God Jesus replied do you believe because you see me happy are those who don't see and yet believe then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the disciples presence signs that aren't recorded in this scroll But these things are written that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ God's Son. In that believing, you will have life in his name. It was still the first day of the week. John's story of new creation lives on. It's still on the move. From last week's dramatic tomb raiding by Mary and Peter and John, into this week's story, this time stamp is a powerful reminder to us that Easter's not just an event that happened. Not even, not even a season that we get to, to stretch out and prolong and sustain our attention and our celebration, but Easter is a powerful new reality that continues to gain ground continues to permeate, continues to seep into all the cracks of creation and make things new. The resurrected Jesus shows up in the middle of them. We talked about that last week. Shows up right in their middle. Right in their midst. Jesus is their center but that center is a roving center. He he goes out and finds them even as they're gathered behind closed doors. It's still Easter. It's still Easter, whether at the disconcertingly insecure tomb with that stone rolled away, where sin and death were raided, And it's still Easter at the safe house where the death defiance has not yet been reported. It's still Easter then and still Easter there and it's still Easter, dare I say, here and now. Jesus disturbs and disrupts their effort and our efforts at creating an environment for peace by entering in. By walking through a wall and speaking, peace be with you. Isn't this what Jesus does? He takes that peace which is no peace and speaks real peace into it. He takes that pseudo peace and brings a real peace that piece that we try to set up for ourselves of safety and security and destabilizes it into a shalom that only he could make. Since it's still Easter, no false security will do. And I'm not exactly sure why this is. a. am not sure whether it's because the enemy has now been defanged, death has lost its sting. It's like you you were handed a poisonous, deadly snake that that has been defanged and had the venom taken out. Or whether the good news could not ever be held in this way. That the good news of the coming kingdom needed more air. It needed more sounding. Otherwise, it'd be threatened. It'd be like putting a light under a bushel basket so that it's snuffed out. One theologian once described it this way, that the church exists for mission as fire exists by burning. The good news must go. That center must be a roving center. Jesus must meet us where we are. This is always the story of God's people. This is Israel's story in which they were blessed to be a blessing even as they were threatened, even as they were persecuted, even as their end seemed nigh. And this is Jesus' story as he's gathered around the cross, that seeming end of the Messiah. This is the story that we continue to share and, can, and come around when we read God's Word, when we join in God's story, and when we gather around the table. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So now we've been given this gift. We've been equipped. We've received His spirit who has lived with the Father and the Son from all eternity who breathes life into dry bones. Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome reminds us that if the same spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. This is revolutionary stuff, you guys. This is this is life-changing. This is worthy of an hallelujah. And our story seems so exciting, so revolutionary, so unbelievable. And then and then Thomas shows up. We've been watching, well, not really we I've been watching and Rachel's been in the same room, but we've been watching this past week. These uh, old SNL clips of Debbie Downer, like with the, the sad trombone sound. And that's a little bit of what Thomas is, is doing here in this story. We're so excited. And then Thomas shows up. He's been given this popular nickname. Most of us know him as Doubting Thomas. And I'm not sure how fair that is. He gets this glowing report from all of all of his friends, we've seen the Lord in this last week. And I feel a little for Thomas. History's been a little cruel to him for giving this nickname because aside from this story, I'm not sure we have much of a reason to to view Thomas as a particularly doubtful person. Any more than anyone else, any more than you and I maybe a better nickname maybe a more biblical nickname from the text is that thomas is the twin everywhere it refers to thomas in the new testament in the gospels it says thomas the one called didymus and didymus of course is a word that means twin there's a lot of speculation about who thomas's twin really is and i think he has one but if if we get in tune with how the evangelist John tells stories, how he puts these little details in to open up a whole new world for us, and it has all these different layers with different meanings. Uh, I wonder if at some level, at some meaning, that Thomas the twin doesn't represent those two people that Thomas is always carrying around with him. That he's always carrying around his twin with him. That we're always carrying around twins with us. of Those who are good at having faith and those who doubt. Thomas the believer and Thomas the doubter. You see, if you trace Thomas through John's gospel, his, his two previous appearances, he shows up, of course, at Lazarus who's dead. <laughs> but he's not exactly doubting here, he, he, he seems pretty excited about Jesus. He says, he chimes in after Jesus resuscitates, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and says, let us also go with Jesus, that we might die with him. And then in John 14, Thomas throws in a question, but it's not really a doubt question. Jesus comforts his disciples, and Thomas says, We want to go with you, but we don't know where you're going. How will we know the way? And this is, of course, all an elaborate setup for Jesus. Thomas kind of teased Jesus up, and Jesus says, Well, actually, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. Of course, alluding to the fact that Jesus is going to be their center. He's going to be their destination. and He's going to be their path. Anyone who's seen the Father has seen me. Thomas seems pretty eager here. Pretty eager to follow Jesus. Eager even to die. This is the same Thomas which, uh, after he meets this resurrected Jesus, Church history tells us that he's the one to go to India as one of India's first missionaries. And he actually dies in the name of mission, in the name of the gospel. Thomas will be a martyr for the good news. So it's a little strange to me that we always view Thomas as as some sort of antagonist as some sort of, of guy that got it wrong as some sort of unsympathetic character i wonder if if the kind of t- doubt that thomas has here might actually be a little healthful that thomas might actually have a healthy dose of doubt i think of how the reformer martin luther Describes this sort of existence when he says the disciples already believed in one sense for each new trial they face would offer more scope for their growth of faith so that what is potential then becomes real. Each new trial serves faith. Each doubt serves faith. Luther says and this is a inflammatory stuff. He says, faith can neither be stationary nor complete. Faith always becomes he who is a Christian is no Christian. Faith is always on the move. It's always becoming. The twins of doubt and faith always see doubt as a service to faith. Doubt is faith's growth mechanism always becoming always asking questions always questioning your own assumptions because only this sort of healthy doubt takes seriously how mysterious how wonderful how impossible our God is doubt is the growth edge of Easter for a little bit of a side note All you kind of Bible nerds—it's these little instances, these little episodes of faith that that biblical scholars actually use as a proof for Scripture's trustworthiness and veracity, for its its historical trustworthiness and its trustworthiness for our faith. Because the argument goes. If, if someone was making this stuff up, if it was pure fiction, if it was untrustworthy, it wouldn't include all these cracks. It wouldn't include a sheer facade of faith and belief and rock-solid knowledge. It wouldn't include all of these really important people to the faith, all these insiders to Jesus' mission who don't quite get it. This is the criterion of embarrassment, which actually proves trustworthiness, doubt proving faith, even in our text. And this is shot through the whole Bible story. If you're gonna go anywhere in the Bible to to learn about faith, to learn about an inheritance of faith, I'd steer you to Hebrews 11. After all, this is the hall of fame for faith. This is the hall of faith. This is maybe the most helpful treasury, detailing lives, example after example of people who have had faith, culminating in the faithful one, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. It even defines faith for us. It says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and and assurance about what we do not see. It's by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command and that what is seen is not made out of what is visible. If I ask you to write a genealogy of faith, I'd hope you'd include some of these heavyweights, like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob Moses, keep going, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you dig deeper into each of these individual stories and don't just gloss over them, you find a whole lot of doubt. <laughs> For all the parents, when you start naming your kids biblical names, you find out real fast that there are all these little shadow stories in the Bible. Uh, no one is immune, even our, our most perfect saints. Like I, I think back a few years ago uh, how how threatening it is to, to name uh, people after people because hagiography won't hold and this happened with um, all these people that loved the story and it's an amazing classic of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and they named their child after Atticus Fitch and then uh, the author wrote a late in life prequel <laughs> in which Atticus uh, wasn't such a great character. And all these little Atticus's running around the playground. And their moms had, had kind of buyer's remorse on their names. But if you go through even Hebrews 11. And you start actually digging into these stories. You see that, that Abraham and Sarah. These, these, the mother and father of this movement of God. Creating a family to bless this whole earth They named their son Isaac, like his, his Hebrew name literally means that horse laugh that Sarah, this old lady had when God said, you're going to have a kid. It sounds like a laugh of both faith and doubt. Or if you dig in Jacob's story, who gets renamed Israel, he tricked his dying dad and brother into a blessing. And then he later wrestled with an angel all night. He would not say uncle, and he walked away with a limp. He walked away with a wound from faith and doubt. Or how about Moses? Moses, the receiver of the law. Moses, the one who walked away from seeing God with his face shining because of the countenance of God's glory. Who upon first meeting God at the The burning bush sheepishly sheepishly tells God probably in a stutter that you've got the wrong guy. I can't be your mouthpiece. You should choose Aaron because I can't talk. And then this legacy continues into the New Testament. You look at Peter, the rock upon which the church is built. And aside from all of those denials of Jesus. I don't know this man. I don't know that man. Woman, that's not me. You also have Peter who steps out of the boat in faith to follow Jesus upon the waters and then takes his eyes on, off Jesus and this rock upon which the church is built sinks like a stone <laughs> on actually pretty buoyant salt content water he sinks. Or how about a contemporary saint? I I always flash if you talk about modern day saints, I always flash straight to Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who is this just paradigm of what it means to be a faithful person, a person filled with faith. Except if you start to dig Deeper, you uncover things like this interview she did with Time Magazine years back. And this is a direct quote. She says, Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see. I listen, I do not hear. From this great mother... Of faith, we hear these words of supreme doubt. Let me submit to you that doubt is not a good thing. It's not an ultimate thing. It's not a place for you to stay, but it is a profoundly human thing. There's a certain health to doubt because it reminds us that we serve God and not the other way around, that we're the ones swept up in what God's doing. The prophet Isaiah might say, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts, not our thoughts. Sure, doubt can be an excuse for all sorts of things, inaction, disobedience, stasis. But a tinge of doubt well attended to can remind us that we're the creature, not the creator, that we're invited to God's story. And that there's these surprising twists along the way that are going to catch us by surprise. A little incredulity takes serious how incredible the things of God really are. And I think in this mixture of doubt and faith, I think kind of the middle of that Venn diagram is grace. I think in in Thomas' story, we see a profound moment of grace as Jesus meets Thomas in his doubt. As Jesus gives Thomas exactly what he needs at a moment when what Jesus is doing doesn't map onto what's possible for Thomas. The status quo is is disturbed. Perhaps when when we encounter a resurrection, when we encounter the risen Jesus, maybe our best response is a double take because we've never seen anything like it before. In our story, Jesus gracefully appears right in the middle of them. And Thomas is changed. He encounters and he experiences Jesus by encountering and experiencing the very sights of Jesus' pain and vulnerability. His hands, his feet, his side. And instead of guarding them, Jesus opens him up to Thomas's touch. What if that was our paradigm for relationships? What if as we grow in Christ likeness, as we grow to be more like Jesus, that means when we encounter people, instead of hiding our wounds, whether our scars, physical or emotional or spiritual scars, what if we open them up to the touch of those whom we're encountering? What if we do away with all of the elaborate ways that we try to cover up our scars and we open them up to someone else? I want to close uh, by giving you kind of four helpful um, observations—not uh, exactly uh, to do, um, but uh, some observations from the text uh, to help you encounter when when you're in doubt. And as I was looking at these, at these things, I, uh, I did a little research on, on what some wise voices might tell us to do when we're in doubt. And it's really a mixed bag. So hopefully the ones I offer will be a little more helpful because when I looked it up, you had, for instance, uh, a wise voice like Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, coaching us that when in doubt, do it. (laughs) But then you have Ben Franklin says when in doubt don't. (laughs) Or I love uh, really hilarious and and bright uh, former radio host Garrison Keillor. He says when in doubt look intelligent and that's just that's perfect for him. And finally uh, John Heisman who The award for best college football player. He says, always when in doubt, punt. Just punt. Don't even think about it. And I want to offer a few things that when you're in doubt, ask for grace. Like that's the primary thing you should be asking for when you don't even know what to ask for because Scripture even tells us our ability to pray is a graceful gift by the Holy Spirit that pulls prayers too deep for sighs, too deep for groaning out of us. When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for us. When we don't know how to pray to God, Jesus prays on our behalf. And all this is this amazing intricate, divine complex of grace. So when you're in doubt, ask for grace. Ask for an encounter. Ask to be met by Jesus. Though the doors were locked, Jesus stood there with Thomas. Stood there with a cynical, proof-based Thomas. Jesus knew that grace for Thomas was going to be an encounter. And so often we forget this. We intuit or at least we know from scripture that, that faith is a gift of grace that we don't do anything for. But somehow when we're in doubt we feel like we need to dig ourselves out of that hole. That faith is leaning into God but then when we're, when we're in doubt we need to figure our way out. Scripture tells us by grace you've been saved through faith That is not not any work that you do to believe. But let me tell you, there's good news because it's not even your best works of not doubting. (laughs) But it's going to be a graceful encounter with God and Jesus by the Holy Spirit that is going to help you in your doubt. Second thing, when in doubt, share your doubts with others who have faith. Don't isolate yourself. You're not weird for having doubts. Thomas' encounter takes place with others who have encountered the risen Jesus. Jesus speaks peace to Thomas like he spoke peace to the storm and it was stilled. Those others with Thomas say, We've seen the Lord. And somehow their sight that, that helps. Bring Thomas's eyes into focus. Third thing: when in doubt, feel the wounds and remember God's faithfulness. Thomas is invited to do something pretty visceral, pretty, pretty actually pretty gross. Remember, uh, Rach. Um, when she was in physical therapy school, she had to do these rotations to different clinics and hospitals. And one of them was in a, 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 a unit that did a lot of wound care. And so she would come home, and the first thing she'd do is she'd shower. And then she'd tell me about the, this, these wound care technologies. There's something called a wound evac, which like evacuates wounds. It's don't. Talk to her about it sometime. Don't talk to her over potluck. That would be disgusting. But it's this disgusting, this gross, this visceral, fleshly reality that Thomas is invited to. Jesus' feet, his side, his hands, the sights of Jesus' suffering become the reasons for Thomas to go from doubt to faith. You might say that it's by Jesus' wounds that Thomas is healed. This is also the way that Jesus spreads his resurrection now. It's, it's been said that the blood of the saints is the seed of the martyrs. And we've seen that even recently with the shooting of, those, of the uh, Coptic, or with, with the bombing of the Coptic Orthodox uh, brothers and sisters on Palm Sunday. And the testimony of those communities to God's faithfulness. in Jesus' resurrection power by the Spirit even in the midst of such suffering. Or a little more than a year ago, the shooting at Mother Emanuel in Charleston. When those congregants were able to speak peace into such devastating pain. Such evil. And they, they countered it with peace. Only by Jesus' blood. Only by Jesus' resurrection. Only by God's spirit. These doubts, often accompanied by wounds, are always occasions to remember. God's people, the Israelites, always kind of knew this too. It's been... Time in the wilderness, time of isolation, time suffering. And when God would deliver them, they would always reach for something to feel and remember that by. They'd always build an altar or an ebony or stone. They always knew that they needed to remember how that felt. God is always in the business of reminding us. Think of the first words of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of slavery that before you get to the business of obeying and following and doing all these things or don't, uh, or of not doing all these things before you get to the business of repenting you need to remember who I am and how I've saved you you need to know what it felt like in Egypt and what it felt like to be rescued over and over. You need to know what it felt like to be brought right through the Red Sea, right where you thought it was all going to end. And out the other side, this is, this is like the proto-cross, right? Where it seemed like God's healing movement was going to end when Jesus was crucified and it was through the cross through the empty tomb that God's work would spread. So we, we also remember by encountering God in his word and, and allowing that word to interrogate us and memorizing that word. So when we, do, when we need it, we reach down and it's somewhere down there and we didn't even know that we had it. We remember as we gather around the table each week. We need to do it each week. We need to do it each moment, each day. We remember the cross. Jesus' death, the one for the many. We remember his body broken and blood poured out for our sake in our place. We remember death defeated by death. We remember that his resurrection, new life, Starts the new creation and we join into that. We remember that once we're dead in our transgressions and we've been raised to new life. And finally, when in doubt, own and articulate that doubt. Because that will help you own and articulate the faith. That you've been given as a gift. Jesus' words to Thomas are stop doubting and believe. Join in God's mission. The sending by the Spirit as the Father sent me so I'm sending you. In this story we get Thomas proclaiming in response to this meeting with Jesus, in response to putting his hands in his side. My Lord and my God. What a significant insight that Thomas gets. My Lord and my God. First off, Thomas becomes the only one in John's Gospel to recognize Jesus as divine, as to profess him as God. Mary is able to understand him as Lord. (laughs) But Thomas now knows something crucial about God. Literally, that God is cross-shaped. That God is present in suffering because God on the cross suffered. That profession of faith, my Lord and my God... Also says something pretty profound about grace about how expansive and overflowing grace is that grace is both big and small that Jesus not only the Lord, the God of the cosmos, the creator, the one, but he's also thomas's lord thomas's god he's Chris is Lord and God. He's your Lord and God. He's big enough to, to fill creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, but he's small enough to know each of us and to give us the grace that we need. So I want to leave you, as it's still Easter, with the encouragement of the end of our scripture for today all those amazing things that Jesus was doing and that his followers are doing through his resurrection power John says that these things above all are written that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ He's the Messiah the anointed one he's God's son in that believing You will have life in his name. Amen.